0: Hi everyone, welcome to my second Cheetah Girls podcast. In today's episode, we are going to explore group development theory and more specifically, Tuckman 1965's Developmental Sequence in Small Groups. So, why are group development theories important? Group development theories are important because they help group leaders anticipate events that occur regularly during a group's lifespan. Group development theories describe the patterns of growth and change that occur in groups throughout their life cycle, from the formation to the conclusion. More specifically, however, Tuckman 1965's developmental sequence in small groups helps group leaders conceptualize the changes in group behavior. Tuckman said that group members engage in specific interpersonal stages and task behaviors within those stages during a group's lifespan to accomplish the purposes for which the group was convened. So Tuckman's model is described as a linear progressive model, which would lead us to believe that the group will progress through the stages in order one by one. But something that we learned from Dr. Rubel is that despite the description of it being a linear progressive model, in reality, most groups will recycle through certain stages depending on what type of group has been convened, depending on the purpose of the group, if it's a psychoeducational group versus a um, interpersonal group, if it's an open group versus a closed group. So although Tuckman's developmental sequence in small groups is described as a linear progressive model, please note that it is possible for groups to cycle through the different stages. So Tuckman's model has five key stages, forming, storming, norming, performing, and adjourning. And when we met as a study team, we came up with an acronym to help us remember the different stages. We decided that we would remember the stages by identifying the acronym F, S, N, P, plus A. And that refers to Florida, Sacramento, Nevada, Portland, plus A. So to dive into the individual stages a little more deeply, the first stage of group development is called forming. And according to Tuckman, this is where group members are testing the group, they're trying to figure out how dependent they can be on the group, and they're trying to orient to the task of the group. So in other words, members are acclimating to the group, They might be participating hesitantly and attempting to determine, you know, what behaviors are acceptable in the group. Um, They definitely want the leader to be in charge, to offer direction, to be supportive, and they're very much looking to the group leader to reduce their anxiety about being in the group. The members are really trying to understand what are the rules for this group, how do we interact, and they're also making decisions about how involved do they want to be in this group they're wondering what is this group about and how much do i want to be a part of it when a group moves to the next stage after forming they tend to move into what's called the storming stage and according to tuckman this is where the group experiences conflict And the group members not only experience conflict with each other, but also with the leader. And what you will see in this stage is that members or group members might withdraw from the group. They may question the usefulness of the group. They might resist being involved in the group. And sometimes, occasionally, they actually attack the leader directly at this stage in the storming stage there is a lack of unity in the group members are just so polarized around the feelings of anxiety related to developing closer relationships with each other so all of the interactions in the group at this stage have the goal of avoiding involvement and vulnerability or exposure so we see our group members really Uh, demonstrating individuation. After the storming stage is our third stage, norming. And according to Tuckman, this is when we start to see the development of group cohesion. This is a stage when our group members begin to accept the group's usefulness, and they also begin to accept each other. So they're becoming more cohesive. And they are developing norms, which are the acceptable uh, behaviors in the group. However, the norms tend to suppress conflict because the group very much wants to be cohesive. Um, they want to conform to each other. And so they enthusiastically um, support norms that um, reduce The ability to confront one another so this is what's really important about the norming stage is that harmony is of the utmost importance the group is not ready to engage in any type of conflict and they are developing a sense of being a group and how to work together but they want to do it in a way where there is a um a sense of cohesion and conformity The next stage is the performing stage. And this stage, according to Tuckman, is when you start to see the emergence of insight in the group. This is when the group is at its most productive and most effective. There is a lot of construction, constructive action happening in the group. Members are gaining understanding of themselves, insight about themselves. they're starting to learn more about their personal and interpersonal issues. The group is truly a therapeutic environment. And the reason why we know it's a therapeutic environment, and this is what's really important about the performing stage, is that members are willingly exchanging feedback. They're self-disclosing. They're confronting. They're taking risks. And they are participating in the therapeutic interactions. The group is working and then the final stage is a journey and this is the final stage of the group near termination and during this stage is when the members begin to realize the significance of the group in their life they're experiencing grief and loss Um, And it is, again, not unusual for the group to maybe cycle back to a previous stage because they are beginning to mourn the loss of this group. So to recap, group development theories are important because they help group leaders anticipate and predict typical group behavior. Tuckman, one thousand, nine hundred and sixty-five. More specifically, um, wanted to conceptualize group behavior into five interpersonal stages that involved fi- uh, that involved specific task behaviors, and our five stages are forming, storming, norming, performing, and adjourning. Or as our acronym states. F is for Florida, S is for Sacramento, N is for Nevada, P is for Portland, plus a journey. I hope you all have enjoyed my second Cheetah Girl podcast, and I look forward to sharing more about group leadership theory in the upcoming episode. Thanks! Hi everyone, welcome to my third Cheetah Girls podcast. In our last episode, we explored Tuckman 1965's group development theory, and today we are going to learn more about group leadership theories. We are going to focus on focal conflict theory and general systems theory. But first, why are group leadership theories important? Group leadership theories are important because they help group leaders conceptualize the group process. More specifically, group leadership theories help us understand the conditions necessary for change, help us understand the dynamics of group members' interactions, helps us understand the role of the group leader, and help us understand how the leader uses group member interactions therapeutically. So with that in mind, we're going to focus on two specific group leadership theories today. Focal Conflict Theory and General Systems Theory. Focal Conflict Theory was conceptualized by Whitaker and Lieberman in 1964. And their theory states that the interpersonal concerns of group members and how these concerns surface in the here and now is important to understanding the group interaction. This theory, has the goal of helping members develop more effective and more effective interpersonal solutions and self-perceptions. To do this, focal conflict theory proposes that there are themes in members' verbal and nonverbal behaviors and interactions that reflect shared concerns, which is essentially what group members wish they could say or do in the group. In the language of focal conflict theory, these are the disturbing motives. Disturbing motives are the shared covert wishes of group members. Focal conflict theory also proposes that as group members consider acting on their covert wishes or disturbing motives, they confront anxiety or fear about the consequences of being authentic in the group. So in the language of focal conflict theory, these are the reactive motives. Reactive motives are the anxieties and the fears that arise when a group member considers being authentic in the group. And so the conflict between the disturbing motive and the reactive motive is what we call the group focal conflict. And what that means is the group focal conflict is when group members want to act on a wish, but they are afraid. So to drill down a little bit more into disturbing motives and reactive motives, I wanted to share some examples. So what might be some disturbing motives or covert wishes that we might see members demonstrating in their behaviors and interactions? What we might see is members who want to share their emotions, members who want to openly share what bothers them about other group members, members who want to discuss issues of interpersonal attraction, members who want to resolve conflict, members who want to disagree. So these are the covert wishes that group members may have in the group. And then when they think about potentially sharing their emotions or sharing what aggravates them about another member, that fear and that anxiety arises in the form of reactive motives. And so some examples of reactive motives are fear of rejection, criticism, fear of also being criticized for their own shortcomings, the fear of looking foolish, or the fear of uh, someone getting angry with them or um, thinking that they are an, an incompetent person. So when we're engaged in this group focal conflict, wanting to act on our covert wishes but being fearful or afraid, groups develop solutions or agreements on how to deal with or how to eliminate that anxiety and so group members behaviors and interactions have the goal of responding to that focal conflict so there are two types of solutions that may uh, be enacted in the group um, and the two are enabling solutions and restrictive solutions So enabling solutions are those that allow group members to express their disturbing motives or their covert wishes and to explore uh, their reactive motives, those fears and those anxieties. Restrictive solutions, on the other hand, uh, do not allow members to express their disturbing motives or covert wishes and to explore their reactive motives. So once again, let's drill down a little bit more on the different types of solutions. So enabling solutions, ones that allow um, members to express their disturbing motives might be openly talking about feelings and the fears associated with sharing them, Uh, sharing reactions and fears of what it would be like to be criticized in the group, Uh, discussing fears about vulnerability and, and what they, appreciate about each other and what attracts them to each other in the group, Um, sharing reservations about um, being seen as incompetent or talking about the fears um, of being criticized and the desire to disagree. So those are enabling solutions. Restrictive solutions are those, again, that do not allow uh, group members to share their disturbing motives And so what we might see happening in the group is the group talking about cognitive topics, um, not talking about feelings or emotions, uh, potentially ignoring um, behaviors in the group and just focusing on um, harmony and how to get along, not acknowledging perhaps kind of like the elephant in the room. Um, attempting to avoid issues by talking about relationships outside of the group, uh, just flat out pretending that there, there is no conflict in the group um, and changing the topic whenever um, you know a conflict or disagreement begins to surface in the group. So those are restrictive solutions. So again, group members have covert wishes which are disturbing motives. Uh, They respond with reactive motives, the fear and the anxiety. That's the focal conflict. And then to work through that focal conflict, group members uh, create enabling solutions and they create restrictive solutions. And that's because the goal of the group is to maintain an acceptable level of anxiety. And that is called equilibrium. Um, An equilibrium occurs when there is a balance between the disturbing and reactive motives when there is a a solution. But when members can't agree on a solution, they actually become involved in what's called a solutional conflict. Um, They attempt to deal with the anxiety created by the focal conflict, um, but they're in a solutional conflict until they successfully find an enabling solution. Um, Dr. Rubel shared with us that all groups develop a theme, um, that there will be a series of focal conflicts where disturbing motives are closely related. Um, and that generally for Dr. Rubel um, is where she notices where the group's energy is. So to identify focal conflicts, um, Dr. Rubel recommends that Group leaders um, observe interactions over time, the themes that might come up over and over again, where there's a lot of energy, um, and she always asks herself, you know, what does that maybe, um, what does that reflect? What is the deeper need um, of of that energy? And she says it's it's often, you know, maybe wanting to be more intimate in the group or a group member wanting to have more power in the group. So what is the goal of a leader? A leader's goal in terms of his or her intervention is to uh, disrupt restrictive solutions and to promote enabling solutions. So our second group leadership theory is general systems theory. And this was a theory conceptualized by Durkin in 1981. And unlike focal conflict theory, where there is uh, a focus on the conflict and anxiety in the group, um, general systems theory really focuses on the communication patterns, the types of interaction that are occurring in the group, and and describing how the group is interacting. So how Durkin, 1981, um, describes the group is in in a series of systems. And so at the, at the smallest level, at the innermost part of the circle would be the individual subsystem, which is the individual in the group. The next layer out would be the interpersonal subsystem. And so this would be perhaps interactions between one or two group members. And then the, the next layer out is the, the whole system, which is the whole group, And then the the larger system, the supra system, is kind of all the stuff outside of the group that might have um, an impact on how the group interacts. And so what general systems theory states is that all levels of the system share common characteristics or isomorphies. And so... um, when we think about how the different levels of the group interact, we want to be thinking about how maybe something happening at the supersystem level um, is there's a shared characteristic in another level of the system. So a big uh, concept of general systems theory is homeostasis. And homeostasis is when a group establishes itself and when it's comfortable, it will do anything it can to maintain itself as is. And so um, what we see in groups is that norms are what promote homeostasis, Um, sort of those those rules around group behavior and group interaction is, is what maintains homeostasis. In a group. Um, So, it is the role perhaps of the leader to constantly try to disrupt that homeostasis so that the folks in the group can experience growth, change, and interpersonal learning. And so, what a group leader is paying attention to is the other big um, concept in general systems theory, and that is boundaries. So boundaries are the point of interaction in the group, and it's how the group differentiates itself. Um, The boundaries are what define the relationships, and it's the interactions that occur across the boundaries. So in group systems theory, uh, group leaders are uh, paying attention to the process of how members open and close their boundaries. And so there are two types of boundaries that um, we might see in a group. And the first type is impermeable boundaries. So impermeable boundaries are those that are very rigid. Um, group members with impermeable or rigid boundaries are those who, who really struggle to consider input or feedback from other people in the group. They're very um, unlikely to, to share in the group. Um, when we have a lot of impermeable boundaries in a group, Dr. Rubel says that the energy in the group will be very low. It'll be a low energy group um, because there's no interaction, there's no feedback, um, and it tends to be very cognitive. And so an example um, is just, you know, unemotional sharing, ignoring feedback, um, and really not kind of, uh, doing that reflective work that that one would hope would occur in a group, but then on the other hand, we have another type of boundary called permeable boundaries, or these might be referred to as diffuse boundaries and when folks in the group um, have permeable boundaries, they are actually um, overly dependent on others in the group. Um, they often become enmeshed with other folks in the group. Um, you know they they respond immediately. They have um, maybe stronger emotional reactions. Um, they're very susceptible to being influenced by the emotions of others, um, and their well being in the group is dependent on others. So um, folks with permeable or diffuse boundaries will have intense over involvement, um, approval seeking behavior. They um, may also not want to have any negative emotions. Harmony is is key when someone has uh, permeable or diffuse boundaries. So the overarching goal um, of group systems theory is autonomy. Um, we want group members to be able to open and close their boundaries by choice um, and to know when. To have an impermeable boundary, when is it it good to close? But then also, when is it good to open? And so that is the key intervention for group leaders is to be aware of those with rigid boundaries and try to open them and be aware of those that have diffuse boundaries or permeable boundaries and close them. Uh, Another intervention that is really important in this theory is just encouraging feedback um, and having in the back of our heads as leaders that an intervention at one level of the system will have a similar impact on other levels because of isomorphy. So what Dr. Rubel said is that in group systems theory, the group leader is an observer a manager, a regulator, and a massager of boundaries. Uh, Looking for those interaction points, um, looking at behaviors, looking at interactions, and helping folks open impermeable or rigid boundaries and close permeable or diffuse boundaries and working toward that goal of autonomy. So this concludes my third podcast about group leadership theories. And again, uh, the two that we learned about today are Whitaker and Lieberman 1964's Focal Conflict Theory and Durkin 1981's General Systems Theory. Take care.